Hey there, and welcome back to Crypto Clarified, Investing in the Truth. This is a podcast series where we come together to discuss the most captivating headlines and trends from the crypto space. My name's Benjamin Dean. I'm Director in Wisdom Tree's Digital Assets team. And today, I've got the pleasure of being joined by Don Ng, who's Associate at Tioga Capital. Kick things off, social media shout-outs. You can always find me on the Bird app, at Benjamin Dean. If you're in the US, you're a US listener, wisdomtreeprime.com. Join the waitlist, you won't be disappointed. And make your life easier. Hit subscribe on whichever platform you are listening or watching this today. Uh, Today, Don and I are going to talk about a topic that comes up occasionally in our podcast series. And I hear more and more when I go around client meetings and speak with people in financial services. Tokenization. It's an awkward word. Uh, You'll hear it more and more and more as it's somewhat entering relative mainstream. Today, we're going to talk about what it means why it's happening, where you can see it happening, and then we'll think a little bit about the future and where it might go. But before we get to do that, the usual shout out to James and Sam in compliance. I need to state the following. To clarify the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of Wisdom Tree and Tioga Capital and are subject to change. Anything we present in this podcast is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, nor as investment or tax advice. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast are not a recommendation Offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities and reliance upon them is at the sole discretion of the listener. Please remember, past performance is no indication of future results. On to the fun stuff. Don, it's a pleasure. Thank you for coming and and joining me today. Awesome. Great to be here. So to kick things off for our discussion today, how about you just let listeners know a little bit about you, how you got involved in the crypto space and uh, what you're working on now with Tioga Capital. Yeah, sure. Happy to kick it off. Um, hey, everyone. I'm Don. Um, yeah, I'm originally from Malaysia, came over to the UK to study, and that's um, kind of where uh, I first got exposure to Bitcoin. So it's basically, you know, studying information and computer engineering um, up in Cambridge. Got very excited about, you know, both ideologically, uh, Bitcoin as sort of digital gold. Um, also very excited about the you know, crypto cryptography side of things um, with the SHA-256 algorithm and all that. Um, yeah, just exploring, you know, the top 10 coins on CoinGecko. And as, and as you could tell, like, um, I'm a little bit more excited about uh, Ethereum, uh, mainly around the smart contract capabilities because um, I was studying a little bit about decentralized computing and all that. I think at that point, it was all quite, um, speculative because you know, people were talking about smart contract capability, but I mean, in reality, back then there there, there wasn't any. Um, yeah, so got into the whole you know rabbit hole about um, the ICOs, participated in some across you know Malaysia, London. Um, yeah, and then have been following the space ever since. It's a curious path to take. Yeah, Sharp two fifty six. Everyone loves hash functions. Uh, super interesting. And I guess, yeah, in a way also watching the smart contracts play out because back in the day, the, the charge leveled against it was nobody uses them for anything. Uh, yeah. And as you said, there was a lot of speculative stuff going on in 2017 with the ICOs, lots of stuff that just did not work to be fair, but smart contracts do work and have evolved a lot since then, haven't they? So it's certainly something to keep you busy. I have no doubt. Uh, in terms of Tioga Capital, what do you folks focus on? Do you have any specific thesis or industry or what's, what's your story there? Yeah, I mean, uh, Tioga Capital-wise, uh, I joined Tioga last year. Um, it's a fairly young fund uh, founded in late 2020. 
Um, we're a European Web3 fund investing across you know, um, all types of um, Web3 related startups globally. Um, it's an $80 million, $65 million euro fund, um, writing you know, 500K up to 2 million checks in pre-seed to early Series A companies. Um, we're a high conviction and lead investor. So far, 14 um, companies uh, in our portfolio. Um, it's just 16 members um, investing out of London, Brussels, and, and Portugal. Um, market thesis-wise, we focus on sort of four pillars um, across Web3. Um, I think the first one would be, you know, blockchain infrastructure and security. I think we've seen recently with, you know, billions and billions of dollars in hacks, we think it's um, increasingly important to invest in, you know, risk management systems as well as security systems there. Um, blockchain infra also includes, you know, scalability solutions and all that. I think the second pillar that we look at uh, really is around regulatory compliance and institutional access. Um, I think that's very much related to what we're going to talk about later as well. Um, third thing is um, about the creator economy and NFTs um, and everything that enables you know creators to connect much more deeply with their fans through um, the uh, basically owning owning you know NFTs. Uh, it's more like an internet native way of, of of owning things. I think. And then I think lastly um, on DeFi, which I think DeFi is a bit misleading because I think whenever people hear about decentralized finance, you know. They, they, they get very uptight and very scared about what decentralization really means. But to us, I think it really just means, you know, on-chain finance and, you know, leveraging, you know, the, the cost efficiencies and the transparency composability to, you know, bring about a much more efficient, um, you know, finance backend, really. So how is the space at the moment, the kind of venture funding space? I know things slowed down over the last year industry-wide. But at the same time, a lot of your portfolio companies, I imagine now are like well into the building phase. Are they still making progress? They're still going? Something exciting yeah, down yeah. the line? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I think we saw the market slow down a little bit late last year, but um, we're seeing it starting to pick up again. Um, I think uh, in a, building in a bear market tends to be the best because I mean, you don't have as much uh, noise around. You just you know keep your heads down and, and just, just build and build towards your vision. So that's, I think, also a good time to be a venture investor as well. Lots of opportunities coming up. Yeah, that's true. It does. There's a much less noise and hype going on right now. The only people who are left are the ones who actually build things. Uh, so indeed, it is a good time. And actually, you get tons of signal out from all of your activity. Um, and actually, it's a really great backdrop for the discussion we're going to have today. Um, tokenization, the ugly word. <laughs> I wish someone had come up with something better for this word because it's just, it's not terribly satisfying. Um, but alas, that's what we're stuck with at the moment. Um, for the listeners, there's lots of ways that we can kind of pursue or explore this topic. Um, maybe, Don, if we could kick things off, when, from where you sit and the people you work with, when you hear that word tokenization, uh, what, what do people mean by it? Yeah, that's a, I think that's a very good question. And yeah, I agree. Not a huge fan of the word tokenization either. Um, but yeah, I think tokenization in essence is really just, you know, representing any asset on, on top of blockchain network. You know, this can be Ethereum, Polygon, or anything else. Um, I think what blockchains uniquely enable is really just transfer of value through the internet. Because I think 
in web one, you were able to read stuff on the internet. Web two, you were able to you know write stuff on the internet. But we haven't really you know been able to transfer value across the internet. What it means is you know just sending. It's almost like sending cash through the internet, right? Which is a little bit different from you know your cash app because. I mean, one one great example is, for example, when Ukraine was raising funds, it was absolutely it was almost impossible for you or me to um, transfer any sort of cash through you know the traditional banking system. Um, it would take days, lots of fees. But when they open it up to for people to transfer things like Ethereum or maybe in the future USDC as well, you know everything just happened super instantly. So I think that that is sort of the the essence of what we mean by the Internet of Value. Great. So there's a few things there for us to unpack for the listeners. One of them is um, that it uses this Web3 infrastructure blockchains. So it's a way of storing information on distributed databases. That's it. Instead of the, the, the value in inverted commas sitting in a bank with its own set of infrastructure that's isolated from others, the entries are put on a distributed database that anyone can kind of interact with, right? The second one you were pointing out there is when you you said sending cash, uh, and so you're you're starting to get close to another buzzword, which is actually like kind of the killer app really for smart contracts, and that's the term stablecoin. I also don't like that term, but basically for the most part they're U.S. dollars. They uh, often sit in a bank account somewhere, and then tokens are issued on these blockchains or distributed databases. Most kind of one of the most popular is issued by Circle, a uh, regulated financial services provider in the United States. Another one is Tether. Um, so let's let's think a little bit about stable coins and, and what you were just saying there. Like uh, the quick story of stable coins is they become wildly, wildly popular. I mean, you said at the top of the show you're from Malaysia. I remember being in Malaysia a few years ago uh, and people were using these US dollar tokens to pay uh, across borders. Is that kind of something you've seen as well? Yeah, definitely. I think one interesting startup in like the Southeast Asian space um, is called StraightsX. Essentially, they do um, both Singaporean dollar stablecoins and Indonesian rupee stablecoins. And it's you know increasingly um, becoming a very cheap way for people to transact uh, across, uh, do like cross-border remittances, essentially. Yeah, right. And it's so for the listeners, you know, all of this happens on like essentially internet native infrastructure. Anyone with a cell phone can can use these. The apps are pretty widespread now. Uh, the number of different places you can get these tokenized Singaporean dollars or rupees or US dollars or whatever. Uh, the range has expanded. And then because like everyone has a, a smartphone these days, um, it's as you said earlier, we can go into some of the benefits, but for mo- a lot of these people, it's just faster and cheaper than the, the traditional banking system. Uh, unpack it further, though. I mean, what are some of the other benefits that you find from using these stable coins, tokenized currency, essentially, uh, relative to kind of the, the legacy financial system? Yeah, I think there are, there are quite a lot of benefits, right? I think I think the five key ones that I can think of really number one is the cost efficiency because you're removing a lot of middlemen um it's a highly automated system fully run on code um i think it's it's not even just you know the 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 crypto enthusiasts who are saying that it's it's cheaper we also saw the imf report from i think early early last year you know telling us that you know if you use DeFi infrastructure it's about three times as, as cheap right compared to emerging market banks or twice as cheap 
if you compare it to Western banks. Um, I mean, looking at like PwC's uh, report around, you know, all the different parties that get involved in the securitization process as well, um, you're killing off a lot of, maybe not killing off, you're, you're removing some of the, the middlemen, um, you know, turning, uh, re reducing costs greatly. I think secondly as well, I mean, faster settlement times and you know, just 24 seven markets. I think um, Swift system has, has worked so far, but it's a very archaic system. I mean, it's 92 out of 100, you know, banks on, on, on there is, is still running mainframe computers. Um, I mean, it takes like T plus two. It's crazy to think that in, in, in the um, age of the internet, that T plus two is still the norm, um, which, which basically means that you settle, you know, two days after um, you initiate the transaction. Um, but running everything on blockchain just makes a lot more sense because instant settlement, uh, much cheaper. I think you have, you know, fintechs like WISE, which, are sort of like you know band-aids on top of a broken financial system. It's essentially a P2P matching system for cross-border remittances. But um, if you want to transfer large amounts, um, something like Wise wouldn't wouldn't really work because um, I mean you need an equally large amount from the other side. So I think that's that's kind of where you know crypto um, shines. I mean other than that, that's that's a lot to unpack really. Um, there's like the thirdly probably the composability and programmable um, side of things. It's almost like I like to um, describe it as a you know one size fits all financial API that you know anyone can build on top of. It's um, you know like money Legos essentially. Um, you know, for example, MetaMask built on top of you know a Dex, a decentralized exchange aggregator like um, One Inch or LlamaSwap, and then you get the decentralized aggregator that which is on top of like decentralized exchanges like Uniswap, Sushi, etc., which is on top of Ethereum's, and you know you can just tap tap in and out of whatever system you want you want and just get like the most efficient swaps um, simply by building just a, a part of the stack. Um, I also think it's, you know, very operationally efficient. Um, it's a lot more transparent. It's much easier to do accounting. I think in the, you know, 10 years ago, my, my, my parents were getting maybe 15, 20 years, my parents were getting stock prices once a day on a newspaper, right? Um, now when we look back, we think it's, it's absolutely crazy. I think in, in 20 years, we'll look back and think that it's absolutely crazy that we only get financial reports once a quarter and it's like two months late, right? Um, yeah, we, I think in the future, you know, when everything is run on, on blockchains, it'll be increasingly transparent. You can just generate, you know, reports. What is Facebook's revenue this second? What is Facebook's profits this second, right? Um, I think we're starting to see that with, um, you know, things like steakhouse finance, um, you know, they're essentially, live reporting um, MakerDAO's uh, balance sheet essentially and a few other um, you know kind of um, tokenization protocols like um, Swarm, Swarm, um, Ondo Finance etc. You can see everything live on chain. And I think yeah maybe just one one final bit is really just around access right whether it's um, access for Malaysians to hold USD um, access for people in you know Nigeria, Venezuela, Turkey, places with high inflation to to get access to USD stablecoins, or it could also be you know access for investors to emerging market credit, which is something that you know used to be gatekept um, for you know either PE funds or high net worth individuals. But yeah, I think that's that's the long story, long version. <laughs> it's comprehensive. And I was almost going to say at the end there, you know, the access as well, because, you know, a lot of people just don't have access to a bank branch or yeah. US dollars or gold or whatever. 
And uh, that last access point is kind of not obvious to a lot of people. I'll go to like uh, Zurich and speak with Swiss private bankers. And they'll say to me, why do I need this? Like, I, I have cheap bank account transfers and it's all fine. I'm like, yeah, but you, you live in Switzerland. Not everyone else does. <laughs> and the other, I mean, so when they say to me, like, what's so why tokenize anything? I say what you just said, faster, cheaper, more transparent, potentially just automatable. You use the word composable as well, which the listeners are now getting very well versed in. And that's all digitally native infrastructure. So it's, uh, it's quite a compelling package when you put it together for some people. And uh, I, I said just then gold, when I lived in Malaysia, couple of, probably five years ago now, I met some folks who had started a company that was using the Ethereum smart contracts and they were offering uh, tokenized gold. Um, that basically their business was based on the idea that a whole bunch of folks got wiped out. Their savings got wiped out in the Asian mm. financial crisis in the late 90s. Uh, they couldn't access physical gold uh, and they couldn't get uh, exposure to like an ETF in Singapore or, or issued from Singapore. And so they had come up with this tokenized gold uh, that they were offering uh, the smart contracts. So this was, you know, five years ago that they thought it had a real use case. And so we're starting to see more and more uh, different kind of asset classes be tokenized, which you've just hinted at. Some of them are like a swarm based out of Germany. Um, I think you said Ondo Finance as well. Backed finance based out of Switzerland, I believe. Um, So what's going on there? What like, explain it a little bit to the the listeners, like what these people are tokenizing, what they're offering and, and where they're offering it basically. Yeah, I think we're starting to see like a renaissance of like bonds and uh, to a certain extent, you know, ETFs and equities coming on chain. I think, um, yeah, recently, I think you connected to me because of the article I wrote around Ondo and Unbacked. Um, I think Ondo, Ondo is an interesting one. It's, um, you know, based in the US. Um, it's only for qualified purchases, which, um, you know, has a lot of different uh, requirements that you need to hit. You know, such as, you know, five mil, I think, in investments, uh, a certain amount of net worth. That's KYC AML, 100K minimums. Um, but the cool thing about, you know, Ondo is that um, there's a very unique ecosystem that they built. Um, it's called Flux Finance, which kind of allows, long story short, it's a compound V2 fork. Um, and it kind of allows people who are non-KYC to lend money to people who are KYC to buy these um, uh, you know, T-bill ETFs, which sort of bridges the yield back to the non-KYC people. Um, it's a bit complicated, but uh, that, that's the long story short. Um, back finance is another interesting one. Um, I think it's, uh, yeah, it's based in Switzerland under the Swiss DLT Act. Um, the model that they go with is slightly different. Um, it's bearer assets where um, non-KYC people will be able to purchase these um, so-called backed assets, so B tokens from KYC people. And these KYC people can be custodians, can be market makers, et cetera. Um, yeah, the, I think the, the, the unique kind of value proposition there is really just, you know, access, right, which is what we're talking about, um, allowing people anywhere to, to buy these tokens, of course, excluding, you know, certain jurisdictions. Um, so it, I think uh, you can't buy it if you're from US, you can't buy it if you're from Canada and, and a handful of other countries. Um, it's, I think it's very interesting from a crypto native perspective. 
but uh, a little bit more uh, difficult on, on, on your regulatory side things because um, technically US citizens cannot, should not purchase it, but nothing's really stopping them from, you know, um, getting a VPN or, you know, going, going through different hoops. And it kind of opens up the door to a lot of money laundering, you know, terrorism financing and tax evasion questions. Um, which I think is, uh, yeah, uh, a part of reg regulation is still trying to keep up, right? And yeah, I'm excited to see where, where it goes. Yeah, so let's dwell on that a little bit because you kind of, what's interesting is that the scene you just painted is you've got this technology and anyone with a cell phone can access it, really. And uh, in all these different jurisdictions around the world, different people are finding novel ways in which to like use this infrastructure. And then it kind of clashes against... Uh, or works with and clashes with certain regulatory and jurisdictional issues. So you said there in Switzerland, the DLT Act, can you quickly spell out what that is in just broad terms for the listeners? Uh, because it's somewhat novel and it's a it's kind of a good example of where if you, you, you're forward thinking, um, you can put something in place that like facilitates people to make use of this technology, benefit from it, while also kind of making sure that everything's above board and and uh, any any potential problems are, are mitigated or avoided. Uh, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't consider myself like a, a regulatory you know, expert well, of, of good. Any kind. <laughs> That's no wonder you've got such a sunny disposition. <laughs> no, but I mean, from from my understanding, you know, from a very high level point of view, you know, the you know the DLT Act kind of just offers certain financial institutions or, you know, intermediaries, uh, and it sort of creates a, a, a legal basis, right, for trading and issuing uh, rights in the form of tokens. Um, I think, yeah, it's one of the one of the laws that's um, being used by quite a lot of startups within the space. I think, yeah, the most famous one being fact. Yeah. Yeah. So listeners, you can go on and use the Google machine to find this out. The, the DLT distributed ledger. Yeah. So, or ChatGPT, that's true, actually. Uh, <laughs> DLT, Distributed Ledger Technology Regulations in Switzerland. And then you should also go and look at the electronic securities law that's been passed in, in Germany. Uh, just because they're, they, in essence, they become like this facilitating mechanisms where, and now I spend way too much time speaking to lawyers who would be specialists in these uh, these setups, but... Um, it's basically allowing people to put these assets on chain, tokenize them, and it's leading to a re-architecting of parts of like how the financial system works in an internet native or digitally native way. Um, that is happening organically. It wasn't happening as much a couple of years ago, but I think the stable coins have really proven uh, the, the killer app use case. There's demand there for it. And we'll see, you know, who is, is successful in mentioning bring other assets on chain, tokenize them or put them on a blockchain or have whatever other way we want to describe the same thing, right? So, the, all right, let's move on from the regulatory thing. We always have to cover it because everyone always asks. But are there any other kind of uh, downsides or, or issues? You mentioned before that one of the pillars you folks look at is uh, blockchain infrastructure and security. Uh, is that something that we've seen kind of rear its head? You already hinted that it had, and I used to work in cybersecurity, so I know. But for the listeners who don't, what are kind of some of the security uh, trade-offs or risks that one has to be aware of with this new infrastructure? 
Yeah, I think what I was hinting at really is around um, compostability being sort of like a double-edged sword. Um, I think we've also seen this quite recently, right, with um, Euler protocol getting hacked. Um, and it, it caused like a huge kind of chain effect on, um, you know, Angle had, I think, 18 million USDC on Euler. And then Idle Finance, which is building on top of um, Angle, got affected. And then you had balances, four pools, you know, affected by uh, they had this, this, this token called BBUSD, which is like Euler boosted USD, um, which was also affected, which, which then infected like um, Yearn because Yearn had some Euler strats with Angle and Idle Finance. And then Alchemix was affected because of Yearn, Yearn bot. So it's, you can see it's almost like a domino effect. And because everything works so well, um, you know, it's, it's, this, this is what we call like atomic composability, right? With um, single transactions um, going through multiple protocols. Um, it's, 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 um, it's useful because um, it's kind of like a universal API that anyone in the world can plug into. Um, but it's also very dangerous when one protocol is affected. And there are, quite, there are many ways that, you know, can be uh, used to um, avoid it. I think, for example, one of them is just having much better risk management and understanding how, um, you know, if your protocol uses state E, for example, what happens if someone does a governance attack on Lido? What, what happens to state ETH in that, in that uh, sense and how would that impact your protocol? Um, you could have, you know, circuit breakers as well, or you could have, you know, a, some people are, are discussing about reversible transactions, which is a bit of a, a bit of a more controversial topic. Um, but yeah, there, there, I think there are lots of ways um, you could, you know, sort of mitigate and avoid this. Um, you could also have rate limits, uh, which means, you know, any transaction above, um, certain amount needs to go through certain uh, maybe votes or certain um, other me methods which approves it. Um, but yeah, I think a lot more work needs to be done in the space. You know, um, on this front, we invested as a fund in Chaos Labs, um, which kind of sort of allows you to do um, economic simulations, right? To see um, what sort of attack vectors can, can destabilize your stablecoin protocol or your lending protocol, but yeah. You've touched on a lot of really interesting points there. To, so let's recap some of them because even I actually hadn't appreciated just how much you get the systemic risk uh, now compared to five years ago. So these DeFi protocols, some of which involve uh, or allow for the trading and exchanging of these tokenized assets, they're smart contracts, they're computer code. And as Don was saying, you know, part of what, one of the benefits here is that you have a, a set of composable pieces that is there, like you said, like almost Lego blocks that you can click together. And in the past, like that, it was a really, really nascent industry. Um, you had people, you know, writing up these smart contracts uh, out back on the porch and then deploying them. And we found like a lot of them had security vulnerabilities. They just didn't work. They broke. Um, there's a lot of reasons why smart contracts will fail, accidental and malicious, but over time, as this ecosystem of different composable applications has grown, the stakes have gotten higher, of course. And as you say, we see these incidents now. The stakes are high. So if you can go and break one of these uh, uh, smart contracts and steal the funds, you can make yourself very rich very quickly. So there's like a huge incentive to go and break them now. Um, and then, as you say, like one, if someone breaks one piece of the system and other pieces are, are reliant upon it, 
well, then you end up with the systemic risk that just did not happen in the past because the ecosystem wasn't as large or as complex, but is now something you know that people have to take very, very seriously if if they think this stuff's going to go even more mainstream or we're going to have more and more money or assets kind of reliant upon the integrity of the, the system. Uh, moving on then, uh, in terms of... Uh, there's, there's one thing I hear a little bit, and some people claim that like with all this tokenizing, it, it will in essence kind of unlock a whole lot of illiquid assets out there that right now uh, are not liquid. And there's something about the way this is set up that means that it might unlock these assets. Have you come across anyone claiming that? I sometimes hear people say tokenized real estate. Um, that's one they point to a lot. Do, do you hear this or see this at all? Yeah, yeah. I think we're seeing quite a, quite a lot of um, companies, startups just building in, you know, tokenized real estate, tokenized PVC funds, tokenized collectibles that can be watches, wine, art, cars, anything. Um, you could also tokenize, you know, uh, credit, right? Because, I mean, th these loans are essentially getting closer and closer to, to, to what bonds are because of the uh, innate nature of, of just being tokenized. But I think what we're, what we're always missing, I think, is um, I think people, a lot, a lot of startups are starting to fit a solution to a problem. And I think um, it's increasingly more important to find a problem to, to solve, right? I think one um, kind of example I like to give is, I'm sure a lot of people have heard about Masterworks. So they, um, they tokenize art and, um, you know, allow people to buy, you know, $20 shares in a $20 million piece of art. And I mean, they started off as a, you know, crypto company, as a blockchain company. They were tokenizing stuff in Ethereum. And then they realized that, you know, they didn't really need to do it on the blockchain um, simply because that's not what the customers needed, right? The, what the customers wanted really was just exposure to art. I mean, TBC, if, if you know, Masterworks is successful or not, but um, I think it's, it's at least a, a, a good experiment to show that, you know, you don't need to tokenize everything on a blockchain. You need to find a problem and solve it. I mean, that, that, that's what startups are supposed to do. Yeah. yeah. And that's what the stable coins did essentially. I mean, the problem was, uh, people would go on crypto exchanges, they'd move their money from their bank account and they didn't want to have to move it back, but they did yeah. want a US dollar substitute or they wanted exposure to US dollars. So crypto yeah, traders exactly. come up there. Yeah, I think stable coins are like one of the first kind of asset classes to reach so-called product market fit, right? I think there's like $150 billion worth of stable coin out there. But what I think what we increasingly see uh, in terms of product market fit and crypto uh, and the real asset side of things really is around like private credit. Um, starting to see that, you know, just, just like what you said, stablecoins enabling people to hold on to cash on, on blockchains, right? Um, credit is enabling people to um, invest in, you know, emerging market credit, whether it's, you know, Goldfinch or Blue Jay Earn and, you know, Singaporean or Indonesian kind of credit or credits in you know latin america or lenders in, in african uh, credit i think it, it it's one of the few things i think we're starting slow starting to kind of slowly see you know pmf and in those kind of areas yeah yeah it's and it, it has to happen somewhat sequentially as well right like for there to be demand for that kind of a product people have to have had the tokenized us dollars the stable coins to begin with 
Yeah, and yeah, exactly. I think that's one of one of the key things that uh, we know when people ask, you know, why now, right? Because people have been tokenizing shares, bonds since 2016, 2017, um, albeit on like permission blockchains and all. But I think, yeah, one of the key questions that a VC asks is, you know, why now? Um, because we, we invest across, you know, a five to 10 year horizon. And if we think it's too early, it might, might not be a good investment now, even if, you know, you're building something great. And yeah, that's, that's spot on. That's exactly why now. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. It's the, the whole, there's not just a good idea. There's execution and then the execution has to be done at the correct time, right? You can be too early. Um, it's better to be too early than too late in many cases, but still, you know, one thing at a time. Uh, we're coming up on time actually as well for this episode, but that's a that's a nice little segue point because um, usually finish up the shows, we ask guests what, what they've got their eyes on, what they see on the horizon, what they're paying attention to. Uh, you're actually a, a really great person to speak to with that question because it's part of like your day job. You have to be keeping an eye on the horizon. Uh, you've just hinted at one there, which is tokenizing the bonds credit part. Uh, what else has got your attention and it can be as broad an answer as you want. It's really going to be uh, more of kind of a, a, a point to ponder where the space is going or where it might go in the near future. Yeah, definitely. I think on the on-chain finance and real asset side of things, uh, I'm particularly interested on the stablecoin side of things, um, particularly you know non-USD stablecoins or maybe Euro stablecoins and emerging market stablecoins, both centralized and decentralized versions of that. I think. Both types of stablecoins have have a place in, um, you know, in, in the economy right now. Um, centralized stablecoins, wise, obviously, you know, as we've touched on, it's um, very dependent on regulation. Uh, whether you know CBDCs, um, central bank digital currencies, you know, start to get introduced, um, we're starting to see lots of pilots uh, on that. So we're closely watching the space. Um, I think secondly would be you know emerging market credit or different forms of credit on chain. I'm starting to see a lot more startups around supply chain financing as well and bonds on chain. Um, we also recently invested in PVO1, um, which is a you know bond tokenization uh, startup founded by the former founders of B2C2, so Maxim Boonen and Flavio. Um, you know, we're also paying attention to the payment space um, simply because I think it's the clearest use case for crypto. And we're starting to see non-custodial crypto cards and lots of payment rails and payment infrastructure. I think uh, last but not least, just going back to the roots of, of what blockchains are, right? You wanna you want like a very scalable blockchain, um, able to you know transact. Ideally, whenever people say like you know 60k TPS transactions per second, that's enough. I always say no because we're not comparing ourselves with Visa, Mastercard, right? Blockchains need to have infinite um, transactions per second and you know not be affected by any other activity. So and, and on that note, we're looking quite deeply into the rollup as a service. Um, kind of space. What it means is every app is a rollup on top of you know whatever blockchain, um, and they get to control you know fees. They're not affected by other people's uh, uh, transaction activities. You know you, you you still want your to buy your bond if someone is minting an FD, right? So I think it it just makes sense fundamentally. So I think that is where yeah a lot of our focus is at. You know it, it strikes me listening to you that one of the other reasons you know why now might lie in that increasing scalability like a lot of these layer two things for ethereum are coming online they're competing against one another but you know one of the big obstacles from for, for use of stable coins in the past was it was so expensive to use the ethereum yeah. network that like 
there's just a whole lot of transactions below a certain amount that just aren't economically feasible. And if that starts disappearing, that, that fees starts going down, it totally changes the economics of you know, why you want, might want certain kinds of tokenized assets or currencies or whatevers. Uh, and people might use them in greater numbers because just now it's makes economic sense to do so. Um, so that might be part of the why now, but you know, there's, there's plenty of other reasons why now. Any final thoughts before we uh, close up shop for the day? Um, no, no, it was a pleasure talking to you, man. You have a really good way with words. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have a way with words, as the listeners know. <laughs> but it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. It was a super interesting discussion. Where can people find you on the interwebs, Don? Um, yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Zdon. That's T-Z-E-D-O-N-N. Or on Substack, um, same name. So Zdon.substack.com. T-Z-E-D-O-N-N.substack.com. Nice one. And with that, I think we're out of time. I, I hope everyone's found today's podcast useful and informative. If you're in the US, join the waitlist at wisdomtreeprime.com. You can always see me on the Bird app at Benjamin Dean. And as a reminder, if you'd like us to cover any specific topics in a future episode or to find out more information, please email snail mail crypto clarified at wisdomtree.com. Thank you again for listening. Don, a pleasure. And we all hope you have an excellent day. Awesome. Cheers.